Okay, we're reading tonight from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 9, starting verse 1 through to verse 37. You can find this starting on page 492 in the Pew Bibles. It's Nehemiah, chapter 9. <clears throat> on the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshipping the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs of the Levites were Jeshua, Benai, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bunai, Sherebiah, Benai, and Kenani. They cried out with loud voices to the Lord their God, and the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Benai, Hashabniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah, said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that's on it, the seas and all that is in them. You gave life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God, who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you, and you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land. For you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them, so they passed through it on dry ground. But you hurled their pursuers into the depths, like a stone into mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud, and by night with a pillar of fire, to give them light on the way they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger you gave them bread from heaven and in their thirst you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked, and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore you did not desert them, even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies. 
Because of your, your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. By day the pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. You gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. You took over the country of Zion, king of Heshbon, and the country of Og, king of Bashan. You made their children as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you brought them into the land that you told their parents to enter and possess. Their children went in and took possession of the land. You subdued them before you subdued before them the Canaanites who lived in the land. You gave the Canaanites into their hands, along with their kings and the people of the land, to deal with them as they pleased. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets, who'd warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were, but when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven you heard them, and in your great compassion you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. Excuse me. <clears throat> and when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven, and in your compassion you delivered them time after time. You warned them in order to turn them back to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, of which you said, the person who obeys them will live by them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked, and refused to listen. For many years you were patient with them. By your spirit you warned them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention, so you gave them into the hands of the neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship that has come on us, on our kings and leaders, on our priests and prophets, on our ancestors and all your people, from the days of the kings of Syria until today, in all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. Our kings, our leaders, our priests and our ancestors did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the statutes you warned them to keep. Even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, 
that did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so that they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you placed over us. The rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. In view of all this, we're making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites and our priests are affixing their seals to it. This is the word of the Lord. Well done, Anthony. He's done a good job there. Thank you. Please do uh, keep that open um, in front of you as we'll be looking at it together. Um, When God meets his people, when God meets his people, wherever there is a kind of divine encounter between God and people, the concerns of time lose much of their significance. That shouldn't surprise us, should it? Um, We know when we're kind of going through the routine of life uh, and someone phones us up out of the blue and says something like, I have tickets for tennis at the O2 to watch Djokovic play. Would you like to come? And you say, well, uh, when do I have to leave? And they say, now. Um, Have you ever had that happen? It's happened to me. Uh, uh, Now comes the, the reply. And in that moment, you have to decide your, your priorities, uh, what they are. I could uh, change this, I could put this on hold and stop that and phone this per- person. I can do anything um, to be there if you really see it as a priority. In my case, my wife goes instead. <laughs> but, but anyway, all, all the plans you had... Um, kind of go out the window and are, are shaped in a, in a new way. The wind, they go out the window because there's been a, a, a new thing, a new inrush, a new experience that's come into your life. And, and so it's entirely appropriate, isn't it, to ask God to meet us in such a way that kind of makes a dramatic change uh, to our priorities, that kind of makes time seem... Um, an irrelevance. You see, in verse 3, they stood where they were, they read from the book of the law of their, of their God for a quarter of the day, uh, and then they spent another quarter in confession and in worship. A quarter of the day and a quarter of the day, that's six hours. Six hours! Should we stay here? Six hours! What do you think? Most of us struggle for an hour. But when God meets um, with his people, the concerns of time lose much of their significance. God our Father, as we come before your word, we pray that time would lose most of its significance to us now. As we encounter you in your word, may your spirit... Take your word and plant it deep in us. Affect us. Change us. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been a difficult week thinking about how to 
preach on 37 verses that are quite long, and there's lots in here. But don't worry, I've only got four words to remember. Um, And uh, in those six hours, um, how the people, how they looked, how they stood, how they spoke, and how they praised, okay? Those are the... The, the, what we're going to look at, as they encountered God. So first of all, how they encountered God, how did they look, how did the, and how, how they dressed, you see, revealed their hearts, didn't it, in verse 1. It says, the Israelites gathered, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Sackcloth probably came from um, camel hair or uh, from goat's hair, and I should imagine it was awfully itchy. Can you imagine wearing something like that? Um, they also were dust on their head. But why did they do all this? What was the point of it? Well, it was an expression of self-humiliation, an expression of self-humiliation. In their outward dress, um, they were saying how they feel on the inside as they heard the book of the law being read. They recognized the sin in their hearts, where their hearts were. Of course, it's easy to dress in a certain way, Um, But what's really going on inside? I mean, we can wear respectable clothes, can't we, on the outside, um, but be actually very disrespectful inside and vice versa. Um, That is true, we know that. Um, You may have heard of the the, uh, singer Billie Eilish. I don't know whether I've pronounced that name. I'm not trying to be too trendy here. She's only 17. Have I got it right? No, Billie Eilish. Eilish, there you go. But, thank you, <laughs> Billie Eilish, uh, Eilish, <laughs> 17-year-old singer-songwriter, uh, so the reason I know about her is because she's released the new Bond movie song, um, that's how I know about her, No Time to Die, and uh, she wears really baggy clothes, apparently, really baggy clothes, big, big hats and things like that, and she was asked, why does she do this, why does she wear these clothes, okay? And she says, I never want the world to know everything about me. Nobody can have an opinion because they haven't seen what's on the in, underneath. That's what she says. Very interesting. I mean, who, who knows? Is it an expression of angst or is it an expression of rebellion or expression of nonconformity? Is it an expression of uh, a rejection of objectification of women or something like that? It might be all of those things. But in the same way... There is something about what we wear that expresses who we are. The people of Nehemiah wore sackcloth and dust as an expression of their self-humiliation as they came in contact with the word of God. That saying something of the reality of, their, of what was going on inside their, their hearts. Well, what's going on in your hearts? What's in your hearts? What's underneath? So that's how they looked. Secondly, how did they stand? How they stand revealed who their allegiance was to. Who were their allegiance? Verse 2 says, those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places. Now to get this, because sound a bit, that sounds a bit weird, doesn't it, in our, to, to separate, but If you go back to the third book of the Bible, in the book of Leviticus, it will tell you all about this. They were instructed in chapter 20 
um, to do this from time to time to show that they were distinct from the surrounding nation. This isn't an expression of kind of arrogance as if, you know, we're better than you kind of thing. No, it's an expression of allegiance. It's an expression of obedience. That's what they're doing. And dedication. They understood that they were God's people and therefore they were meant to be different from the world around them. And this picture finds its expression in the New Testament. Um, the people of God. If you're a Christian here, it finds its expression in 2 Peter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. It says there in verse 9, Peter's speaking, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, echoes of the people of God of Israel. And he says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. I urge you to be distinctly different from the other people around you. So where do you stand? Where do you stand? Are you distinct and different? In what ways are you different from the world around you? Where is your allegiance? In the school, in the gym, in your workplace, in your office? Is there anything distinctly different about you that would convict you, as it were, in a court that you're a Christian? (laughs) Would anyone know? Live differently, make a stand. And the Israelites, as they listened to the law of God being um, spoken, they made a stand, didn't they? And the question for us is, is, will we? So how they looked revealed their hearts. How they stood revealed their allegiance. And thirdly, how they spoke revealed their need. How they spoke revealed their need. Look again at verse 2. They confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law, of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession. They confessed. Notice how the, the, the reading of the law triggered this confession of sin. It's the word of the Lord that triggers the confession. Now, I, know, I think we could fall into thinking that Christianity is all about, ultimately, just a, just a feel-good trip. You know, it's all about positivity, it's all about success, it's all about power, it's all about fulfillment, it's all about naming and claiming it kind of um, reality. And to, in order to feel better about yourself, as if everything, of course, is hunky-dory. Now, of course, I'm not saying, on the other hand, that Christianity should be a life of drudgery and of emptiness and joylessness. Of course not. Let's not forget chapter 8 finished off uh, with the celebration of the Feast of Booze. And there was, it says there that his joy was very great. So there's a lot of joy going on as well. But the fact remains, doesn't it? The Bible makes plain... <coughs> Often the first encounter with God and his law will confront you. It will confront you. And it will confront you of your need of what is wrong, of the desperate state of our hearts. But of course, so often we run from those um, parts of the Bible. What I sometimes talk, uh, cheekily talk about as, as uh, a kind of Philippians-only way of looking at the life of being a Christian. 
I mean, it'd be a bit like going to, you know, the GP, um, you know, with a chest problem. You have a chest problem. What is the, the trouble the, the uh, GP says to you? Um, and you answer, everything's fine with my legs. I'm totally fine. I like walking and getting out and then enjoy the countryside. But there seems to be a shortness of breath, sir. Um, I think we should look at that. Oh, no, I'm just fine. No need to do that. Give me... We do need sometimes, don't we? We do need the bad news in order to get to the good news of how there is a possible solution. But sometimes I think we're so consumed by the idea that all we're supposed to to get is good news, as if someone bringing bad news is somehow a, a killjoy. But when the law was read, when the law came out, when God's word was read... It revealed sin. There was no hiding place. There's no uh, kind of way of, uh, uh, of getting out of it. It exposed. It was revealing. Maybe you've had that experience when you've read scripture and it just exposes your own heart and where you are. And see, as long as sin just in our lives just remains a kind of a nuisance, or a, a, a little insignificant uh, inconvenience, a kind of small problem. We'll never ever come to terms with God and just how, who he is and how he views our sin and our rebellion against him. We'll not make progress in discipleship and walking with him. The encounter with God's law makes us realise that sin is an offence to God. And you see that through this scripture, don't you? It's an offence to God. It's no, never a trivial thing. Do not kid yourself that it is. And we'll never come to that conclusion if we, if we treat it as a trivial thing. We need to sit under God's word and we need to pray that the Holy Spirit will pound our hearts with it because we're so easily deceived we're so easily deceived. That's what happened in chapter, chapter 9. As the people encountered God in his law, they responded in the way they looked, revealed their hearts. They responded in the way they stood. It revealed their allegiance. And they responded in, in what they said as it re- revealed their absolute need, absolute need of God. But finally... It also, uh, the word praised, it revealed how they praised God, how they, how they praised revealed God's story. So this is the big chunk, 5 to 37. Listen to 5 again. And the Levites, Jeshua, Kadiah, Bani, Hashabaniah, Herabiah, oh, that's not right, Sherebiah, <laughs> Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethaniah. See how good Anthony did this earlier. Yeah. They said, stand up and praise the Lord, your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Stand up and praise. And they, the way they praised revealed God's story. We all love a good story, don't you? I love a good story. Um, we love good biblical stories as well. Um, even the public are fascinated by 
uh, biblical stories, aren't they? It's interesting that they've made The Prince of Egypt into a musical. I think it's out this week. You can go and see it in the West End. I think it's this week. Anyway, um, but biblical stories are more than to be just enjoyed. They're not an end in themselves. They're not an end in themselves. Ask yourself, what is the Bible story about? Maybe think about that for a moment. What would you answer? What was the Bible story about? We had to answer it in, in kind of just one or two words. Well, it's about God. It's about God, isn't it? And it's about what he's like, who he is. That's ultimately what it's all about. It's about God. That's what the story is about. You see that here um, in verse 10. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials, And all the people of his land, for you knew how arrogant the Egyptians treated them. And here's the key. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You made a name for yourself. That's the point of the story. Why did God bring about the Exodus? To make a name for himself. It's for his glory, which remains to this day, it says. What day? A day that's a thousand years later. Nehemiah's day is about a thousand years later after the Exodus. It remains to that day. What's the point of history? I always ask this question in my history classes. What's the point of history? Because we used to just talk about um, sea fishing in the northeast of Scotland. And, and uh, uh, the World War II, and there was something else we used to... Oh, the Victorians. But that was about it. That was all Mr. Quigley ever taught me um, when I was 13. I used to say, what's the point of history? <laughs> well, I found the answer here in Scripture. The point of history is God is making a name for himself. That's the point of history, a name which remains to this day. God is making a name for himself, that his people can know him, that they can bank on him, that they can trust him, that they can praise him in whatever situations, even if it's a thousand years later, two thousand years later, that's the first reason why there are stories in the Bible. God wants to make a name for himself. But there is another reason, and it's a really important reason. In um, a book called After Virtue, Alistair McIntyre famously illustrates um, that stories are absolutely necessary if we're to assign meaning to anything. You need a story. You need a narrative. And, And he gives an illustration. He says, imagine standing at a bus stop when a young man... Uh, who he doesn't know, comes up to him and says, the name of the Harlequin sea duck is Histronicus, Histronicus, Histronicus. And then he just disappears. Now he knows what the sentence means, literally conveys, but he has no idea what the young man's statement 
uh, and actions actually mean. Because the only way he can know uh, that is to know the story in which the incident fits. Perhaps, alas, the young man uh, is just mentally ill. It's a sad uh, life, it's a sad story, and that explains it all. But it could be a different explanation. What if yesterday someone had approached the young man in the library and asked him for the Latin word for wild duck, and today the young man mistakes the man at the bus stop for that person in the library? That trivial story would explain it too, wouldn't it? It would explain the story. Or perhaps the young man um, is a foreign spy uh, waiting at a prearranged rendezvous and uttering the ill-chosen code sentence which will identify him as his contact, uh, whatever the... <laughs> yeah, that, that Latin word. <laughs> the dramatic story, you see, would only make sense of the incident too. But without a story, do you see, without the story, there is no meaning. Do you see why the people of God were rehearsing the story of deliverance and exile? Because they had to. It was the only way to make sense of their distress that they were in. Without the story, without the story of God and his rescue, there would be no meaning. And for so many people who are living in distress... They live without that story, and therefore they live without meaning. You see, after the Feast of Booths in Nehemiah 8, when joy was overflowing, this, this time of sorrow, of sackcloth, of fasting and crying, crying out to God, and chapter, this chapter ends in verse 37. You can see it there in verse 37 with those very telling words. We are in great distress. We're in great distress. We are in great distress. And I suppose my assumption is here um, tonight um, there will be people with those words, the weight of those words is, is true for you. We are in great distress. That they grip your soul. I am in great distress because of my sin in my life. Uh, it could be in my, for reasons in my school, in my friendship network, in, in, with my marriage or in my work. We're in great distress. So if that is you, and, it, and of course, the truth is if it's not you, it will be at some point. We need to listen carefully to how these people seek the help of God. How do they seek the help of God? And the answer here is to know the story. Let's know the story of God. Or to know how to praise it back to him. Because that's what they're doing, isn't it? They're praising it, worshipping it back to God himself and how he has acted in history. Why do they do that? They know that God never acts willy-nilly in history. He acts to make a name for himself. Yes, he does things in a certain way because he is a certain way. These distressed, guilt, guilty-ridden people desperately need to see the God of the Bible that the story it tells is the kind of God who is willing to rescue, 
who is willing to save, to save them from their sin and his judgment. And so you get these examples, beautiful examples of it. So one is in verse 16. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Therefore you did not desert them. Nehemiah shows us clearly what God is like. The story shows the people that have fallen into sin and rebellion over and over again throughout history a pattern of failure and then of God's mercy, a pattern of failure and then God's mercy, and it goes round and round again. The passage screams out to them and to us, how will this cycle actually end? How will it come to an end? How will the pattern be broken? You see, because God must deal with sin once for all, for he is righteous and he is holy for his name's sake, and at the same time, they know that God is compassionate and he's full of love and he's forgiving and he's abounding in love. And of course, their predicament, the answer to their predicament is that greatest of stories that God planned. God planned death of the Son of God, shedding of his blood of the most valuable being in the universe. It, you know, it's God's way of saying, really, to us, is screaming, this much I hate sin, and this much I love you. And I'm going to make it right through Jesus. The divine encounter of his people with God, in the same way, he comes to you now by his word, to help you, to show you, who you are, to reveal our hearts, but also to show you his mercy, to show you his love, to show you his story, so you can make sense of what's happening to you. You need that story, and you need to keep telling it to yourself over and over again, and that's what's going on here. Because you can trust him, That's why the story exists. How they dressed revealed their hearts. How they stood revealed their allegiance. How they spoke revealed their need. And how they praised revealed God's story. Let's pray. Father God, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you by your spirit. You reveal the truth of who we are. You show us our hearts. You reveal our need. Father, we, we thank you that it doesn't just end there. It tells us a better story. It tells us the greatest story of salvation that the world has ever seen that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners, to save people who are in their distress. Father, we pray 
that we will know this great story, that it may pound our hearts, that it may shape us, change us, transform us, so that we may be your people, distinct and different in this world. And we pray that this would be all to your glory, for your name's sake. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.